This is an REI Co-op Studios production. You can't see anything. No, that's not quite true. You can see the bottom of your thick wool hat and the top of your frozen scarf bundled up to your eyes. You can see little flakes of snow white against a white-gray background, driven past your face by the wind that roars all around you. But that's all you can see. Until, up ahead, you see something black. A little smudge of perfect darkness, hovering in horizonless white space. As your steps crunch closer, the darkness rounds out into a little circle. A jagged little circle. A hole crudely chopped in the thick lake ice. A window from the white nothingness of this world into the black emptiness under your feet. You beat your hands against your thighs to get some feelings in your mittened fingers and then knock away the thin ice that's formed over the hole. You grab hold of the fishing line and begin to pull it up. And then you stop. And you stare down into the darkness. Five inches of snow, two inches of white ice, four inches of clear ice, then cold, cold water straight down to the bottom. And maybe a trout or two. There's nothing else down there. There can't be. There can't be anything as large as what you just imagined, what you must have imagined that you saw moving down there in the world under your feet. And it isn't until the thing actually starts to come up through the hole that you realize how far you are from shore, how slowly you run in the snow, and how thin this ice must seem to something so large. This is the Camp Monsters Podcast. Welcome to Payette Lake in West Central Idaho. It's a hot vacation spot these days. Forested shore dotted with cabins, Docks jutting out into the wide waters. That constant mosquito song of distant, surging engines as folks bounce their boats across the lake's quiet surface. But in a different era, in a different season, beneath that placid surface lurks the story of a creature. A creature unnamed until years after its last confirmed sighting when people around here decided to call it Charlie. Well, careful, careful. Now, don't crowd. There's plenty of room for everyone on this floating dock. I thought we'd tell this story out here, over the water. It's a pleasant place to be on a fall evening, with the last of the day's boaters coming in to tie up, and the quiet and the sunset settling on the lake. (laughs) The quiet... 
you want to hear real quiet, come up here in the dead of winter sometime, when the lake freezes over. Like the day we're going to talk about, back in February of 1944. Up until the moment it happened, that day was as quiet as any day's ever been up here. Cold. Snowing. The lake completely frozen. And Iris was out on the ice. The only sounds were the squeak of her boots in the snow and the wind roaring in her ears. The light was starting to fade. There was going to be a storm that night, Iris could tell. The flakes were falling, thick and fast, blowing in sideways, closing the world down around her until it was hard for Iris to tell how far she could see. She paused and looked back toward the shore. The glowing light from her cabin's window was gone, so things were getting really thick. If she hadn't known the path to the ice fishing holes so well, she'd have turned back. But she only had one hole left to check, and the others had all come up empty. The fish had turned shy in her part of the lake the last few days. Nowadays, folks ice fish in Payette Lake for sport, but back in those times, right on the heels of the Great Depression, a lot of people in this part of the country counted on the lake and the woods to put meat on their table. Irish sure did. Growing up with her aunt and uncle in their little cabin on the edge of the shore, always scratching for food and work and money. So a few days in deep winter with no fish, well, it made for boring dinners, that was sure. Iris stamped on the thick ice as she walked, to keep the blood flowing to her numbing feet. Later on she'd wonder about that stamping, wonder if it could have had something to do with what happened next. Anyway, she didn't mean anything by it. She was just stamping to keep warm. And at the same time, she tried that old trick of thinking her warmest thoughts. And that was easy. The hottest days of her life so far had been the summer before, the summer of 1943, which they'd all spent down at the south end of Payette Lake, in the town of McCall. Iris and her aunt and uncle had moved down the lake to McCall that summer for work. The Second World War kept the lumber mills booming. At the same time, it robbed the whole area of working men. So, at the age of 17, Iris had her pick of jobs. She chose one sorting the logs that floated in the log boom outside one of the big lumber mills, while her uncle was across town helping blast foundations for the dam they were building where the lake drained out into the North Fork of the Payette River. Huh, that blasting. It echoed off the hills all around that end of the lake. In the middle of a long, hot day sorting logs in the sun, Iris would feel the lake quiver beneath her, an instant before the... of another explosion reached her ears. Iris's aunt hated it. Said the blasting was so loud it was sure to... Wake the lake. Whatever that meant. Iris's aunt was always saying funny things like that. She was a small, sharp old woman. Descended from people who'd lived in the area for generations. The things she said didn't always make sense at first, but when you look back at them later, more often than not, she was right. And later that summer, Iris had an experience that gave her reason to reconsider what her aunt had meant. 
It happened after work one day, when the setting sun was heating the western mountains with its fiery descent. Iris was swimming off the far end of the log boom, letting the lake wash away the sweat and grit of another long day working in the heat. Suddenly, she felt the lake seize up around her, and then relax, then seize again, so she waited, treading water, until she heard the muffled report of two quick explosions echo out from the dam site. Big ones, too. They must have hit some stubborn rock over that way. She'd made up her mind to ask her uncle about it later when she felt something brush against her bare feet. Now, Payette Lake is clean and clear, but it's still a lake. There are plenty of things living in it. What Iris felt might have been a bit of lake weed or a little fish. Maybe a half-sodden strip of bark from the logs in the boom behind her. But what her foot had brushed against hadn't felt so little. It wasn't flimsy, fleeting, soft, the way those other things would be. No, it had seemed large and solid. Well, the lake was much too deep where she was swimming for her to touch bottom. Iris looked down into the depths around her, but the glare of the sunny day bouncing back made the surface of the lake opaque. She couldn't see anything. So she took a deep breath and plunged under the water. It took a moment to blink her eyes open down there. The bubbles she'd carried with her from the surface roared up past her ears, and then the lake quieted down to that familiar, deep cacophony of haunting underwater sound. There were the groans and clunks of logs bumping into one another inside the boom. There was the sound of her own body moving through the water, and more distant, indistinct sounds that might have been anything. The echoes of animals and people moving on and in the lake. Iris looked directly below her toward whatever she'd kicked and saw nothing there at all. Nothing but water down to where the light failed in a wash of deep blue. Huh. Strange. She was about to head back up to the surface for air when... What was it? There was movement way down there beneath her, like glimpsing a cloud of ink poured into a glass of clear water, something that billowed and uncoiled just for a moment, and then faded back down, away into the deep, and Iris needed air. She came back to the hot, sunny surface for two quick breaths, and it struck her how different, how foreign this world of light and air and heat was from the world beneath her. How surely she belonged in this one, and what a stranger she was below. But whatever she'd seen down there, it, it didn't make sense, and she wanted to figure it out. She wanted to solve it, to answer her own question of what it could be. Silt? Billowing up from the bottom, disturbed by something? 
a swirling school of fish, or... Iris dove back down again, waited a moment while the bubbles of the surface roared away, and when she blinked her eyes clear and looked down, the answer seemed simple enough. It was a log down there, just just one end of an old log rising out of the depths. A dark old snag, a big one, maybe jostled off the bottom by the shockwave from the explosions at the dam site. She could see one end of it clearly now, floating, looming up, twisted and gnarled by time and damp, with a a knothole that looked kind of like an eye, and an old root jutting out like the jaw of a gaping mouth. Startling, but harmless. And the other end of the log sagged away down into the blurry blue. Well, mystery solved. Iris was about to give a kick to propel herself back up to the surface when it happened again. That swirling, that boiling, uncoiling darkness in the depths below where the log was jutting up. And as she stared, it began to look, it looked just like the body of a snake, coiling over and over gliding slowly upon itself. Iris was repelled by the strange vision, but fixated too. She held herself there, underwater, staring, while her mind struggled and failed to explain what she was seeing. And as she watched the coils swirl in the cold blue beneath her, the log that had risen out of the depth suddenly began to move as if it had broken free from the bottom and was floating up toward her. Except, no, it, it wasn't just floating. It was, it was moving from side to side. It was, it was swimming like an eel, slowly at first, but gaining in power and speed. And as it came, that dark mass of coils below was unspooling after the thing. The eye she'd first seen as a knothole seemed to blink, and the jutting root that looked like a hanging lower jaw seemed to close against the thing's slimy, lake-bottom snout. Then a burst of bubbles obscured Iris's vision, and by the time she realized that the bubbles were from the last astonished air leaving her lungs, she was already scrambling up onto one of the big logs at the edge of the boom. She turned and looked back into the water and pulled her feet up higher as through the glare of the early evening sun she glimpsed a long, dark shape rising toward her. Rising. And then fading away again under the dazzling ripples of sunlit glare. Iris walked slowly, carefully back to shore along the logs of the boom keeping well out of the water and thinking, replaying those panicked moments over and over in her mind, trying to decide, what had she seen? Had she just been startled by a strange-looking old log and some silt rising from the bottom? Or she couldn't be sure. And she wasn't alone. 
It seemed like no one was quite sure of what they saw in the lake that summer of 1943. The local sheriff was newly elected, and at first he didn't know what to make of the reports, which began as a trickle, but then began to pour in, of some strange and frightening creature in the lake. Eventually, he decided the whole thing was an elaborate practical joke, cooked up by his political opponents, and he congratulated himself on never taking the bait, never making himself look foolish by mounting a search or anything like that. But outside the offices of the self-satisfied sheriff, the streets and taverns and churches and meeting halls of the town of McCall were abuzz with stories. Who'd seen that low, dark shape sliding across the surface of the lake? What was it? What should they do? For her part, Iris knew exactly what she was going to do. The day after she saw, well, whatever she had seen, she asked for and got a promotion off of the log boom and started working in the mill itself, grading lumber. And as that summer spent the last of its heat over the next few weeks, she often spent her time gazing out across the bright blue lake, wondering. But she didn't see anything strange the rest of that year. Of course, she did all her gazing from the shallows. She didn't go out into the deep water again till the lake froze over, thick. She never dreamed there was anything to worry about then. But back in the biting cold of the following February, 1944, Iris gave her bundled head a slight shake to clear it. <laughs> Seemed like she could never think of the summertime anymore without the current of her thoughts carrying her back to that day. And the whole think-warm-thoughts thing wasn't working at all. Her hands and feet were numb. There were crystals on the ends of her lashes where the wind snapped at her eyes and tried to freeze them open. Well, the wind could have saved its breath. Her eyes were about to be frozen open. Wide open. By terror. started with a little smudge of red in front of her, so small and dim that she could hardly be sure she saw it at first. It was the battered little flag on the tip-up, the arrangement of sticks and fishing lines she'd set over the hole in the ice, designed so that the flag popped up when a fish tugged the line that hung below. On a clear day, she could see it from the shore and today was the only flag she'd found flying over any of the holes, and she was hopeful she wouldn't have to trudge back across the ice empty-handed. Iris carried a walking stick tipped with pointed iron, handy for knocking away the thin ice that had formed over the hole. She struck the ice, heard it crack, reached down to begin hauling in the fishing line, and then things began to happen very fast faster than her mind could follow them. As she bent toward the hole, she saw a flash of movement in the water, close to the surface, just under the ice, bursting up through the hole right toward her. And she was struck by something heavy and slimy, and she fell back onto the ice in surprise. And she gave a startled laugh. 
In all her years of ice fishing, since she was a little kid, she'd never once see a fish do something like that. Jump, clear out of the hole, and not a small fish either. This was a big one, the kind that usually hung out down near the bottom in winter, hardly moving, waiting for the spring to wake them up again. Stranger still, the fish had barely hit the ice before it was followed by another, and another, and another. Large and small, different species of fish began to pour from the hole onto the ice like a flood. The smile faded from Iris's face. This was beyond her experience. She'd never heard of fish acting this way. They writhed and slid across the ice around her, flapping their bodies and working their mouths and gills with those big, round eyes showing that fishy expression that always seemed fixed in pure panic and fear. Iris scrambled up from the ice. It was growing dangerously slick around the hole as the leaping fish spread fresh water that promptly froze into a slippery sheet. But she couldn't help her curiosity. Before she grabbed a few fish and left, she couldn't help sidling carefully back up to the hole in the ice and peering down into the darkness from which the fish continued to scramble. She didn't know what she expected to see. It was already dim in the storm around her. Under the ice it was pure black. As she leaned over the hole, another fish jumped, and then the dark water was still for a moment. Until suddenly, with an impact she could feel through her feet, something struck the ice beneath her. And at the same instant, the tip of it burst a few inches out of the hole and stopped. Something too big to quite get through. Something greenish-gray and dark and tipped with snapping teeth. Long, sharp, white teeth. They would have been needle-like if they were smaller, but each one of these was as long as a pocket knife blade. Beneath her, just inches from her feet, they snapped one, two, three times in rapid succession, and she could feel the ice tremble under the force of those jaws. Iris lurched back, turned to run, slipped, and fell hard among the fish of all colors that were writhing their way to frozen stillness. And as she struggled to regain her feet, some quirk of the icy surface slowly slid her around until she was facing the hole again. And from her knees she saw the same teeth, the same dark jaws as before, snapping in the air as whatever was beneath struggled fiercely toward the surface. And it wouldn't be long now before it was through. The ice around the hole was heaving and cracking, the teeth and jaws slipping higher and higher above the surface as the open water widened. Iris didn't wait to see what it was, to see if it was the same creature she'd seen that summer. She didn't want to see what was forcing its way through six or more inches of ice. 
She jammed the sharp iron tip of her walking stick into the surface of the slick ice and pulled herself across it until she regained the rougher snow. And then she was up and away, running. In the blindness of shock and the howling storm, she wasn't quite sure which way she was going, but she knew it was in the general direction of shore. She wasn't thinking of anything as she ran. If you've ever found yourself in a situation that rings your whole adrenal gland into your bloodstream all at once, you find your mind so overridden that it has a hard time even remembering what your body did in those moments. It wasn't until much later that Iris wondered about the words of her aunt, about the explosions that summer waking the lake, and the possibility that whatever it was, down there in the dark depths of Payette Lake, Maybe it was sensitive to noises. If it could be woken by them, maybe maybe it could be attracted to them. Noises like, well, maybe like footsteps, pounding hard against a silent waste of windswept ice. No, Iris wasn't thinking that or anything as she ran, hoping every second to see the light of the cabin window or the dark patterns of pine limbs under the snow. Anything. Any glimpse of shore. Shore and safety. But instead, something else appeared. Just a few steps in front of her through the blinding storm. Something small and unthreatening at first. Nothing large and dark with sharp teeth punching through the ice, no. Just a little square of color out here in all this white. Just a, just another little tin tip-up flag, painted battered red, marking another of her fishing holes in the ice. And just as her momentum carried her another charging stride or two closer, Iris watched that little red flag tip up suddenly. Like there was a big one on the end of that line. A big one. Just out of sight. In the darkness under the ice. Maybe if Iris had had her skates, she could have done one of those hockey stops she was so proud of. Throwing her blades at an angle. Scraping a cloud of ice dust up over that little flag. And then powering away in another direction with strong, graceful glides. But no, she wouldn't have been able to scrape dust over the flag anyway, because as she slid and stumbled closer in her heavy boots, the flag disappeared entirely. The sticks snapped as line and flag and all were torn away and ripped under the ice. But they only stayed down there a moment. And then they erupted back up through the hole, balanced on the snout of that, that thing, that creature, that nightmare like muddy dark driftwood with knobbly swirls of bone and flesh for a face, split open with teeth like pocket knives and the throat like oblivion, gaping wide and lunging toward her. Out on the ice, closer to the cabin, Iris's uncle was trailing wearily behind her aunt and trying, in a tired, 
patient voice to get her to be reasonable. Iris's aunt was a little eccentric, and her uncle was used to that, but sometimes she just took it too far. Iris hadn't been gone for long, and she knew the lake from birth. Even if she got a little turned around out there, she could always find the shore and know her way back to the cabin. The ice was at least six inch solid straight across. There was no danger of falling through. So there was just no call for Iris's aunt to drag them both out here, away from a warm stove, just because of some wild feeling that she got. And... And... And there he trailed off and stopped walking. Stood up straight and listened. Listen to the sound that came to them over the steady roar of the wind. It was a sound like... It was a long, low, booming sound. It was like thunder that rose and fell and never stopped. It was the sound of ice breaking up. A sound they'd only heard in the most dramatic spring thaws. And never, never this early. Never in February. Never with ice this thick on the lake, and... And... With Iris... Still out there. Without another word, Iris's uncle ran to catch up to his wife, who was running as fast as she could toward the fishing holes. Toward the roar of shattering ice. They got there just in time. Iris was struggling with failing strength at the shattered edge of an enormous, gaping hole, pulling herself half onto the jagged verge and then sliding back into the open water over and over again. They threw her the knotted end of the rope that her aunt had felt she should bring, but Iris's hands were too numb to grasp it. So quickly, quickly her uncle knotted a loop at the end. And thrown out to her again, Iris was able to slide her arm through the loop and hang on while uncle and aunt together pulled her into safety. As they dragged Iris back to the cabin, her uncle had sense enough to ignore the slurred, hypothermic words she was rambling. But with Iris's icy arm clinging around her neck, Iris's aunt heard it all. Heard about the creature and about that last despairing instinct that had brought Iris's iron-tipped walking stick up, just as the thing struck. Then she heard how its massive, wounded body thrashed the thick ice to pieces as it sank beneath the water. Iris's aunt heard, and she believed. But I'm not sure other folks really did. Anyway, after Iris's encounter, the sightings stopped, at least for a while. Iris's aunt hoped she'd killed the beast, but Iris was sure it had just gone back to its lair, back to sleep. The dam was finished that year, and gas rationing kept powerboats off the water for the rest of the war. Things got pretty quiet out here on Payette Lake. Later on, folks still talked about the thing that they'd seen in the lake back in 1943, 
and every few years someone would claim, with their tongue half in their cheek, that well, they'd seen something. But you can tell from the name that they eventually picked for the creature that the, the real fear and confusion of the early sightings was gone. They chose the name Charlie in 1954, inspired by a well-known radio comedian, Jack Pearl, who got laughs telling ridiculous tall tales in a thick German accent, and responding to his sidekick Charlie's expression of doubt with his catchphrase, Was you there, Charlie? Iris thought that was a silly way to name something so mysterious and frightening. Something she knew was much more serious. Not that she has anything against radio personalities. Even at the ripe old age of 96, at home in Boise, Idaho, she still enjoys listening to radio dramas. Well, nowadays we call them podcasts. Hi, Iris. Thanks for the story. And thank you all for listening. I notice those of you at the edges of the dock have found your way closer to the center, away from the water. Just to hear the story better, I'm sure, right? But you know, in recent years, sightings of Charlie have increased. Well, this lake grows more popular every year, which means more boats, which means more noise. And if Iris is right, if whatever lives in the depths of Payette Lake is awoken and attracted to noise, then, then maybe we should all just step as softly as we can, leaving this dock. Camp Monsters is part of the REI Podcast Network. Doing cannonballs off the log boom are our executive producers, Paolo Motola and Joe Crosby. Yes, yes, we are watching, Paolo. Oh, yeah, good splash. Good splash, Joe. Okay. Behind them, wearing cork boots and using a pike pole to sort logs for the green chain, while reading up on lumber and ice fishing terminology is our senior producer, Chelsea Davis. Down at the dam site, our associate producer, Jenny Barber, is gleefully setting off the next charge, while back at the cabin, our engineer, Nick Patrie, worries that the chest-rattling clump of the explosion will awaken the beast that sleeps at the bottom of the lake. The unspeakable, the unthinkable, yours truly, Weston Davis, writer and host of the Camp Monsters podcast. Next week we'll find us beside another lake, a very different lake. Far from the mountains, out on the open plains, the wind ruffles the surface of Little Walgren Lake, which people used to call Alkali Lake. Yeah, in the old days people used to talk about a monster that lived at the bottom of that little lake waiting to snatch up unsuspecting livestock and people from the shore and drag them in. Well, good thing those days are long gone. Or are they? Join us around the fire next week to find out. Of course, the stories we tell here on Camp Monsters are just stories. 
Some of them are based on things people claim to have seen and experienced. Right, Iris? But it's up to you to decide what you believe and how to explain away what you don't. Please subscribe if you haven't already. And remember to like, share, and review the Camp Monsters podcast. Great reviews and word of mouth keep expanding our Camp Monsters story circle. And that's what keeps us recording. Thank you. And see you again around the campfire.